probably because of my operational background, my approach to being an entrepreneur is really to first and foremost be a maker. Uh, that you build and learn and iterate on your ideas and, you know, focusing on the toughest problems first. And I'd say, you know, at, at Virtual Incision, we've got a little bit of a, an MIT approach, uh, which probably isn't surprising given Shane's background. And I also had a son attend undergrad there. But it's, you know, Menzi Manus Mantris. It's mind and hand. It's a hands-on practitioner's approach. So uh, even Shane would tell you, uh, rather than measuring twice, cut once, you should measure once and cut twice. Welcome to MedSider Radio, where you can learn from proven medtech and healthcare thought leaders through uncut and unedited interviews. Now, here's your host, Scott Nelson. Hey everyone, it's Scott. In this episode of MedSider, I sat down with John Murphy, the co-founder and CEO of Virtual Incision. With a background in life sciences, aerospace, private equity, and venture capital, John co-founded Virtual Incision in 2006. The company makes miniature portable robots that can be used to perform specific operations. The first iteration is designed for colon resections with new variations planned for the future. Here are a few of the things that we discussed in this interview. First, more funding is coming into the medical device space, but it's still tricky bringing investors on board in early rounds. Consider approaching regional funds which might be more inclined than nationally known firms to support local companies. Second, design a regulatory pathway that complements your R&D strategy. If you're working on brand new technology and plan to create further iterations, consider applying for a de novo classification. This can serve as a foundation for the 510k notifications you file for later variations. Third, consider a dual track approach to exiting, preparing for an IPO and for potential acquisition at the same time. You'll have to hit a lot of milestones, but it's worth the effort. Okay, so before we jump into the discussion, I want to mention a few things. First, this episode is brought to you by Qualio, one of the most trusted providers of quality management software for life science companies. That's Qualio with a Q, Q-U-A-L-I-O. Over 300 leading worldwide therapeutics, medical device, and clinical research organizations leverage Qualio's cloud-based quality management system software to unite their teams, processes, and data. With Qualio, life science companies can safely scale and swiftly bridge product development and quality management while also seamlessly addressing complex compliance and regulatory approvals. To see Qualio in action, visit medsiderradio.com forward slash Qualio. Again, that's medsiderradio.com forward slash Qualio. For Medsider listeners, Qualio put together a free guide on how to transition your company to a paperless EQMS. It's available at no cost by visiting medsiderradio.com forward slash paperless. Again, that's medsiderradio.com forward slash paperless. So there's two links for you to remember. See Qualio in action by visiting medsiderradio.com forward slash Qualio and get Qualio's free guide on how to transition to a paperless EQMS by visiting medsiderradio.com forward slash paperless. Okay, second, if you're into learning from proven medtech leaders and want to know when the new content and interviews go live, head over to medsider.com and sign up for our free newsletter. You'll get access to gated articles and lots of other interesting healthcare content. If you want even more inside info from medtech experts, think about a Medsider premium membership. We talk to experienced healthcare leaders about the nuts and bolts of running a business and bringing products to market. This is your place for valuable knowledge on specific topics like seed funding, prototyping, insurance reimbursement, and positioning a medtech startup for an exit. In addition to the entire back catalog of MedSider interviews over the past decade, premium members get exclusive Ask Me Anything interviews and masterclasses with some of the world's most successful medtech founders and executives. 
since making the premium memberships available, I've been pleasantly surprised at how many people have signed up. So if you're interested, go to medsider.com to learn more. All right, without further ado, let's get to the interview. John, welcome to MedSider. Scott, thanks for having me. It's nice to spend some time with you. And I know we're, we're calling from the, the same side of the country here in California. You're just in the, the northern part. I'm in the southern part. Yeah, looking forward to the, to the conversation. It should be, should be a fun one. Indeed. Um, so with, with that said, let's, uh, I, I provided a, a kind of an overview of your background, a very high level overview of your background kind of at the outset of this interview. But I always love to start here first. I, I'd love to hear kind of your ele- elevator pitch uh, on your, your professional background um, leading up to kind of your, your current roles at, at not only Virtual Incision, but also, you know, Tri-Valley Ventures and kind of what, you, what, you've, what you've done there. Yeah, great. Um, Scott, I'm a London native. I grew up in a, uh, a place called Shepherd's Bush in West London up until I was about 22 years old. And uh, I did a computer science undergrad uh, in London and then did uh, an electrical engineer and a computer science master's over in Chicago because uh, I, I had fallen in love with the U.S. following about a six-week uh, Greyhound bus tour do- around the perimeter of the, the country with some friends. And so it wasn't much later that I arrived in O'Hare with just a couple of bags and uh, in hand and had never really looked back. So, uh, you know, my early career, was, uh, career work was in software engineering and systems analysis. Uh, but then I did an MBA in international finance, and that set me off on a great uh, global career where I really worked on kind of deep tech embedded systems in uh, sectors like aerospace and life sciences, uh, you know, more in in corporate world. And then uh, I did a couple of middle market private equity CEO roles before landing uh, at Virtual Incision. And like, uh, as you mentioned, we're in Northern California here. I've lived in Pleasanton uh, with my wonderful wife, Liz, for about the last uh, 20 years. We're in the East Bay of San Francisco and, uh, lucky to have raised uh, four terrific children and, uh, you know, uh, they're off doing cool things uh, now. And it really is it's because I've been here for such a long time. I think this is a really spectacular startup ecosystem here in the in the Tri-Valley um, around this area. Uh, and so I joined uh, Tri-Valley Ventures with uh, a couple of co-founders there uh, to fund a number of startups in the East Bay. I think we're the first uh, venture fund in the East Bay. Um, so I love, I've gone full entrepreneur and investor uh, on these things, Scott. Yes. Sitting on both sides of the, both sides of the table. Uh, and I know, I know we're going to, we're going to spend most of our time talking about sort of the, the journey at virtual incision, but can you touch real quickly on Tri-Valley? Where, where do you, you know, where, at what stage do you typically invest in companies? Are there certain, certain categories that you typically like to invest in? Can you tell us a little bit more yeah, about that? You know, it's, it's all about early stage uh, seed investment and series A mainly, and it's for all companies uh, only located in the Tri-Valley, which is, you know, Dublin, uh, uh, Pleasanton, Livermore, a little bit up the, uh, the Bay Area here. So, uh, you, you know, we've got a lot of uh, SaaS. This is maybe one of the homes of enterprise SaaS from uh, Viva to uh, all, all sorts around here. Uh, but also a lot of deep techers tied to you know, Lawrence Livermore National Labs. And so we see device, we see AI, we see software as a service. So uh, Fund One was just a small little fund uh, that we invested in, you know, a dozen companies or so. And we're just off on uh, closed out, uh, again, uh, a micro cap fund two to do the same for, for over the next few years. So 
you know, bio, uh, med device, SaaS, uh, those types of things we're seeing. So uh, it's, it's really exciting. Okay. So all, but all early stage, all pretty early stage, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Okay. Okay. Exactly. Very cool. Yeah. The, the fun, the fun parts in my opinion, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, this, this should be good because I'm interested to get kind of your, uh, your take on a few different, a few different talking points, especially considering you've got experience, right. Kind of, you know, operationally running companies, um, as well as as well as investing in in the early stages. So, uh, yeah. with that said, let's transition to, to to virtual incision. Can you take us back in time? I think your LinkedIn profile says you you technically started at, at virtual incision back in 2012. I'm not sure if that was really if things started earlier than that or maybe a little bit later. But yeah. uh, talk to us a little bit about kind of how the how the idea for the the Mira platform kind of, kind of came to be. Yeah, you know, Scott, I think the founding story of uh, Virtual Decision is pretty cool because uh, somewhat surprisingly, the University of Nebraska Med Center in Omaha acquired Da Vinci Serial Number 8 or something like that. And they recruited in my co-founder and chief medical officer colleague, uh, Dmitry Alinikov, uh, to come in and run UNMC's, uh, you know, uh, and minimally invasive surgery and their fledgling robotics program. So, uh, Dimitri, he's a chief of surgery, he's an advanced laparoscopic surgeon, a luminary surgeon in many ways. And so he started uh, thinking about how you could use uh, little, little robots on the inside instead of big robots on the outside for things in general surgery. And about that same time, he met my uh, co-founder and chief technology officer uh, colleague, Shane Farrater. And Shane was just returning from uh, three stints at different NASA sites. He's a Mars rover guy. He's an MIT PhD roboticist, maybe a top 10 roboticist on the planet. Who knows? A good Nebraska guy heading back uh, to Lincoln to be a professor of mechanical engineering at at UNL. So again, they started this uh, in the early 2000s, formed the company in 2006. And then I met them at JP Morgan. I think it was January 2011. And I was just gripped by this uh, crazy idea of mini robots uh, for general surgery because I had been a supplier to Intuitive Surgical and was totally amazed uh, about their pioneering work and the incredible uh, work they've done over the last couple of decades here uh, for robotics in the OR. But this this idea, uh, you know, of mini robots that you could deploy uh, anywhere in any OR, in any setting, really grabbed me, and so and so here we are with the Mirror platform today. Got it. That that that's cool. I, I'm originally from the mid, the Midwest, so very familiar with uh, you know with oh, Omaha and, and Lincoln, which is you know for anyone familiar is about 45 minutes west of 45 minutes to an hour west of uh, west of Omaha. So definitely cool cool institution. A lot of a lot of great minds there. So and I would encourage everyone. We'll, we'll link to the the website um, in the show notes for this interview, but. Go to virtual incision and check out some of this technology. It's really cool, especially if uh, if you're kind of you know following the um, the robotic scene. Tons of activity. It seems like there you know every week there's a new a new robotics company that I, that I hear about. So before we kind of get too far into into learning kind of you know lessons kind of learned that you you've you've gleaned along the way uh, along your career and especially with with respect to virtual incision, John, tell us a little bit more about how your technology, the Mira platform. Is different, right? And and maybe don't go too far into the weeds, but like, how is it different than you know a lot of the other robotics companies that are in, in development now? Yeah, so um, I think uh, we're unique in that uh, we've got a, a two-pound robot versus a two-thousand-pound robot. 
we definitely see uh, this type of platform complementary to the mainframes of today, where you might have a mainframe robot in one or two rooms. But then I think we've been thinking about what about the other 80% of ORs? We've been thinking about, you know, academic centers, yes, and high volume centers, but what about community hospitals and rural settings and that ambulatory surgery center uh, and OUS? Uh, what kind of solutions are really going to, uh, you know, be plausible in those locations? And so uh, we focused on uh, a device that, uh, you know, can be uh, mobile and used in any OR. It's a foundational, beautiful technology, robotics excellence, as you'd expect, uh, you know, on some of these, uh, you know, the existing platforms. Uh, but again, it's a small package. It's, uh, uh, it's can be set up any set up in any OR in, you know, under 10 minutes. There's no draping. It's easy quadrant changes for multi-quadrant surgery. So we're really taking uh, a a specialized approach to uh, a robot for a specific procedure instead of a general uh, generalized robot. So uh, our first indication is colon resection, which is probably the marquee surgery in general surgery. And then we'll add a family of these mini robots for things like hernia repair and uh, gallbladder removal, and then on to hysterectomy or gastrectomy and those types of things. So yeah, I think take a look at the website, you get a little idea of what we're up to. Got it. And I'm presuming, so you mentioned that, that Shane and Dimitri kind of initially started the company, what yeah. did you say back in the, was it the early, mid 2000s roughly? Yeah, like, mid 2000, 2006 was the, okay. yeah. And then, so when you, when you first met them, you know, at, J, at, at JP Morgan kind of in that 2011 timeframe, how, how much, how much progress had they made on the, on the technology at that point in time? Yeah. You know, it, it was more the idea they, uh, uh, this has been a miniaturization journey, really, over the last decade, tell the truth, Scott. And uh, our current uh, robot, we kind of, uh, you know, from the prototype side is, is what we call Alpha, Alpha 5. And that's what we're going through the FDA, IDE, and uh, de novo process with now. But, you know, back then, it was Alpha 1. Uh, we started with a robot that you had to assemble inside uh, the abdomen, in the insufflated abdomen. And then Alpha 2... We were able to get one arm in at a time and, you know, with the two arms. And then Alpha 3 was a breakthrough because it was the first wholly contained robot uh, with its whole, you know, a separate uh, but uh, integrated um, flex tip camera. And then we, then we went to uh, OUS First in Man in, in Paraguay on that device. We learned a lot in those uh, on that small uh, clinical study and that spawned alpha four and alpha five uh, developments. So, you know, along the way, lots and lots of preclinical labs, we probably built 40 or 50 or 60 different types of robots and devices. And so that's been the journey <laughs> to get to this stage. Got it. That's cool. And the, the website that I mentioned earlier, vir virtualincision.com, if you actually hit, go to the site, they've actually, you've got really cool images of these different alpha products, alpha one, two, three, four, and five. So it's, it's kind of cool to see that, yeah. that progress. Um, well, with, with that said, John, let, let's, um, let's talk a little bit about funding, right? These, these, yeah. these early prototypes, right? And that, that, that early journey for a startup, like, uh, like virtual incision, um, especially considering, you know, you sit on, like I said before, you sit on the, uh, the opposite side of the table as an investor too. So um, when you think about kind of that, those, those dynamics, you know, op operationally running a startup versus, versus investing, investing in them, 
for other entrepreneurs that are in the same space, right? They need to raise their next round of capital. And let's maybe frame it up as, as maybe early stage capital seed, maybe series A or B, um, not late stage. You know, yeah. is there is there a couple like really key kind of things that you think those 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 med tech or, or health tech entrepreneurs really need to understand about this process? Yeah, uh, Scott, you know, I'd start off by saying that I think all rounds are difficult <laughs> and particularly in device. And, you know, this, we've really kind of just emerging from a little bit of a nuclear winter, really, in device funding. And, you know, it was the same for biotech before that. And they've they've emerged beautifully. And, you know, health IT has been on a great run. And now device, I think, is starting to, uh, to get better, too. It's considered more part of the solution with novel treatments and cost control and and there's data with everything too now. So it's it's all changing over that last decade. And so, uh, you know, the things I think about uh, is, uh, you know, most of the traditional VCs, if they exist now in device, right, or later, uh, are going much, much later stage, at least a Series C and beyond approvals and things like this. So it's, it's really tricky uh, to line up your Series A's and your B efforts. So... Uh, I like to keep the series somewhat pure if you can, you know, friends and family and, you know, in, and, and seed to get things going. And then if you can find uh, some early stage capital, people who understand the, this stage, uh, maybe regional capital. That's certainly we got our early series A was done in Sioux Falls, just three hours from Lincoln, for example. And that can help you, you know, build uh, your early concepts and prototyping. And then Series B, keeping it, again, traditional and focused, where you're really moving then on to um, advanced prototypes and then your early clean reg hurdles. And then Series C, again, is, is regulatory approval and early commercialization. So I think some, if you can keep it some discipline by uh, funding stage, I think that's good. Uh, but the most important thing, I think, for the entrepreneur in, in all these cases whether you're in tech or med tech or, or wherever, is to just have this compelling mission uh, to guide you through. These journeys are usually seven or, seven or 10 years. Or, uh, they're long, so you really got to believe in what you're doing. And then we're lucky in device to have uh, this kind of great noble purpose to our endeavors, but there's also no hiding and imposters don't survive. So it's just absolutely essential to focus on the clinical uh, solution and the clinical workflow flow and building great gear and solutions around that. So that, that's a few of the things that, uh, you know, I think about uh, when looking at building these companies. That's, those are good thoughts. And if, so if I, if I, if I, if I, maybe this is a fair, a fair summary of kind of your answer would be thinking about like making sure that you're strategic and you in thinking about your capital raises and, and, and aligning with, you know, a classic, you know, classic stages or inflection points uh, yeah. of the company, right? From prototyping to early stage kind of development to reg and then clinical, maybe in the, in the later stage rounds. And then secondarily, what I heard from you is there's got to be, there's got to be sort of a, an underlying kind of, you know, driving passion or mission behind, behind the company. Cause these are long, these are long journeys, right? This is not, this is not typically a, a one, two, three year turnaround. It's a, you know, it's, it's seven, 10, 15 years, you know, in the, in, yeah. in the making. So there's gotta be, there's gotta be some, some meat on the bone from, from that standpoint is why, what I kind of understand from you. Yeah, exa yeah. exactly. 
Great character yeah. voice. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, and I, it reminds me of a conversation I recently had with uh, with Holly uh, Rockweiler, who runs Medora. Uh, she's up. At, she's uh, well, I think they, they used to be based in the in, in Northern California there, but she's uh, in Portland now. We talked about the very same thing um, that how how crucial it was for her in, in like in, in their journey as a company that she was actually very passionate about the problem, the clinical problems that she was trying to solve. You know, and she she mentioned the very same thing that that you did is like that absolutely was critical, right? And kind of pushing through all of these, all of these hurdles, you know, that you need to need to cross um, going from one stage to the to the next. And so with that said, John, let, let's transition to maybe the, the opposite end of the spectrum, right? Where you, you've got, you know, maybe the the company's, you know, well, well, well funded, you've closed on your series C or your your D, you're hitting your milestones and thinking about a, an exit, a liquidity event, whether it's a, an acquisition, which is probably the more likely scenario, or an IPO. Can you, uh, can you talk to us a little bit more about like your general approach to that? Um, I don't want to sound too too vague, but like maybe what are some of the key things that you know other other startup founders should be thinking about um, when it comes to when it comes time to to a potential exit event? Yeah, you know, uh, first I think an important mindset is that you run your company as if you're going to own it forever. So that kind of just sets uh, a baseline. Uh, but then I say, you know, following a high quality dual track to either an M&A or an IPO is a good way to go. So some might say there's even a tri-track approach these days, including, you know, the SPAC IPO and things like that. But I think a solid dual track approach uh, is still the way to go, particularly, you know, in device. Uh, because, you know, pre-revenue or small cap public companies are extremely tough. Um, so, again, uh, keep it more traditional. Uh, you know, post-approval, uh, solid revenue CAGR, healthy R&D pipeline, all that if you're going to uh, position for the public market um, exit. And then on strategics, uh, I, I think pre-approval M&A is still very rare. So it, unless you're in really sizzling hot segments like uh, surgical robotics potentially or something like that. So, so you really just have to complete your, your regulatory milestones and and, you know, there's a number of these usual prerequisite milestones around a uh, clinical value prop, your IP, your quality management system, your financials and financial audits and your HR house being in order. So there's a ton of work to put some teeth into your dual track, whether you're IPO or, or, or a strategic M&A. And then uh, for strategics, I think uh, you just got to keep them up to speed with your progress. It's, M&A is definitely the lifeblood, uh, you know, it's the innovation engine for a strategic. So they want to talk to you and see your progress and that can lead to good things. So that's how I think about our situation for dual track M&A or IPO. And then PE is a, is a whole different bird altogether. It's a little bit different type of company. Um, obviously you're leveraging EBITDA, you're uh, you, you're really executing around operational efficiencies or growth vein and, uh, and these types of things. So uh, that's different. That's for more long-time entrepreneurs, I think, that maybe uh, can get some uh, dilution, uh, get some, uh, some payback, you know, in, in their company and, and then go on to the next stage. But that's uh, a little bit of a different situation again. Got it. I, I love I love the the kind of the, the the thought process or the kind of the mindset of that that sort of that dual or even like tri trifecta sort of a, a approach, right? With uh, M and A, you know, uh, uh, an IPO or a SPAC, 
And uh, um, so I, I love kind of the, the framework, but I, when, you, when it comes to strategics, you know, considering that's, that's probably the, the most likely outcome for most, most med tech startups or healthcare startups in general, yeah. how often, like, do, do you have a, do you have kind of a, a preferred approach for how you typically like to keep strategics involved um, kind of along, along the journey? Is it, is it once a year you're reaching out? Is it, is it very intentional or is it you're, you're trying to catch up at various conferences uh, presuming we actually get get back to those at some, yeah, <laughs> at some point in first right. conferences, but yeah. yeah, what's your what's your general kind of uh, perspective on on how, yeah, to, I, how to how to how to run those 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 conversations or keep keep strategics up to date? Yeah, I think there's first you got to understand who uh, you really want to kind of work with, and so maybe there's a handful of folks you want to keep up to uh, to speed as as likely M and A exits, and then then you're right, you're just building a rhythm and. Each firm may be a little bit different. It, one might be a quarterly update, uh, you know, with the BD uh, team, you know, spearheading. Um, or others might be, you know, you're at Sage's conference and you want to do a, a private tech demo with them and, or share your, you know, your approach on the clinical side or feedback and things like that. So I think you're looking for a, a regular rhythm. It could be quarterly. It could be, you know, depending where you are, maybe a, a six months update could be good because you've hit certain milestones or accomplish certain things. Um, but, you know, get to know uh, the teams early and who, who, you, who you're dealing with and, and what their interests are and uh, kind of get on that kind of uh, rhythm, I think, is, is how I think about it. Hey there, it's Scott, and thanks for listening in so far. The rest of this conversation is only available via our private podcast for MedSider Premium members. If you're not a premium member yet, you should definitely consider signing up. You'll get full access to the entire library of interviews dating back to 2010. This includes conversations with experts like Renee Ryan, CEO of Cala Health, Nadim Yared, CEO of CVRX, and so many others. As a premium member, you'll get to join live interviews with these incredible medical device and health technology entrepreneurs. In addition, you'll get a copy of every volume of MedSider Mentors at no additional cost. To learn more, head over to MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium. Again, that's MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium.